Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast, where every week we talk fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making things happen in the industry. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and on today's episode, I sit down with Melanie Travis, the founder and CEO of Andy, the swimwear company. Melanie tells me all about how her company managed to not pay rent for two and a half years, the equity deal she struck with her manufacturer, and how swimmer is big enough for a bit of healthy competition. That's coming up. Hey, Melanie. Hi. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. I want to get into all that you're up to with Andy Swim, which is newer than I thought. Yeah. Yeah, we're pretty new. April 2017. April 2000. Yep. Two and a half years old. Congrats. Thank you. Hey, do you feel like you're over the hump or is it always scary? (laughs) Good question. Uh, It is always scary. The frightening things change along the way. The things I was scared of six months in are very different than the things I'm scared of now. Um, but but it's been a really, really, really fun time. And I, in some ways, I can't believe it's been two and a half years. Yeah. Oh my, I love this subject. What are you scared of now? <laughs> yeah, let's turn this into a therapy session. <laughs> uh, is that a real question? Serious. Oh, oh wow. Okay. All right. I mean business. What am I scared of now? Um, a lot of things. I mean, you know, internally, we now, you know, when it in the beginning, it was just me and basically my cousin working out of my living room. And if it didn't work, yeah, who cared? We'd go on to other jobs. Um, now I have 14 employees that rely on on me and on Andy Swim for their livelihoods. Um, and that's that's a certain type of pressure that's scary that I didn't have before. Um, we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of customers who have purchased our product, uh, who, who think of Andy a certain way and, you know, how do we continue to maintain that and make sure that we're, you know, doing the right thing by our customers, um, both in the way we serve them on the customer experience side to the products we continue to roll out. Uh, We have investors who've invested millions of dollars into the company. And that's a a fear that I didn't used to have. And now I'm like, oh, boy, better not lose their money. Uh, In fact, I should multiply it many times over. Right on. So let's talk about the business model. I think it's been... Everybody probably compares it to Warby Parker of, but it is kind of the try-at-home model. Um, That's how it started. Has it evolved since then? It has evolved. So exactly. We started with a home try-on model where you would go to our website. Our website was basically one button, and the button was receive a box. We had three styles. You couldn't choose between them. You couldn't choose any colors. It was just as basic as it gets. You would say what size you were, and you would receive a box with what we had at home. And you'd try them on at home and send back anything you didn't want to keep. That was um, We did that for a few reasons. One is we wanted to learn about fit because in swim fit is, you know, really important, probably more important than any other apparel category. Um, And we wanted to really, um, we wanted to stand out. And, you know, I'm not blind. It's a competitive category. There are a lot of swim brands out there. And we felt like this was a way to stand apart. And it um, it helped. I mean, we were in Glossy before we even launched because yes. of it. So um, it, it was definitely good. But over time, we learned that women actually want options. They'd like to choose. Um, they don't necessarily want a whole box of swimsuits at home. Um, so we learned a lot and eventually evolved the model to a more 
quote-unquote traditional e-commerce model, uh, but where we still offer free shipping and free returns. So it's completely risk-free. Nice. So you started with one-piece swimsuits only. Was it a big step to launch rollout bikinis? When did that happen? Yeah, it was a big step. So we we launched with one pieces because I myself am a one piece kind of girl, kind of lady, woman, whatever, <laughs> <laughs> whatever I should be called. Um, and 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 that was really the the area that I'd particularly struggled to find a good product. Um, there is sort of a sea of bikinis out there, and a good one piece that fits well, is comfortable, breathable, um, you know, classic, uh, under a hundred dollars. That's hard to find, and so we started you know, for that particular pain point. Um, But then as we grew and evolved, and especially once we raised some investment capital, it was clear that we'd need to expand our demographic. And bikinis still represent the largest share of the swimwear market. And so we launched a few, you know, choice two pieces. Um, It's still a small part of our business, but uh, we launched them probably a year after we first launched. Got it. Let's talk about what you learned the first first couple months or the first, I don't know, time period. Tell me how long it was when you were doing the, the try-at-home boxes. What did you learn about, I know that it was, the model was if you buy, you know, two, like maybe the second one is more affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, were you finding that maybe, you know, they would find one they like or maybe, what, what, what were the learnings? Yeah. Um, you know, our customer, an early learning that has sort of remained true, for better or for worse, is that our, our customer skews um, a bit more affluent. And so, you know, though we were definitely incentivizing keeping more by offering discounts the more you keep, that actually was not something that resonated um, with our customer. Um, our customer has come from brands like Arez or Mauricio, where those are beautiful brands um, with with great product. But you know, a one piece is over four hundred dollars um, from Arez, and 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 so we have done a really good job as a brand, um, you know, providing that same quality and aesthetic, but at a much more accessible price point. Um, so I'm really proud of that. But the sort of offshoot to that is that, you know, discounting a second suit, it just doesn't really mean anything. Um, and so that was, that was a key learning and we basically don't discount at all anymore. If you can avoid it, you know, as a brand, you you should avoid it. Yes. What is kind of, as everyone's doing promotions, maybe around Labor Day or Memorial Day, is there something special that you do around that time, even if it's not a, you know, direct discount? Yeah, we'll do um, we'll do gift with purchases sometimes. Okay. Um, we make really fun swag, like little you know waterproof jelly bags or water bottles and things like that that are branded um, sweatshirts, uh, and those are really popular and they're a nice way to incentivize purchases uh, during a traditional sale period. Okay, that makes sense. What's been the key to keeping the prices low? Is it just been it's been that direct to consumer model? Mm-hmm. It's been I don't know a small and mighty team. What, what what's the secret? Yeah, um, all of the above. Definitely, you know, direct-to-consumer is key for that. We get a lot of inbound from the big box retailers, um, and we certainly will talk to them, but um, it's really shocking for me. I, I, by the way, have no background in wholesale or or any of that, and the prices at which they buy the product are just extremely low. And so, you know, we have a certain margin that we preserve for the customer, and if we sell it to a big box, we won't make any money. Um, so, so we can keep prices low by going direct to consumer. That's obviously a model that everyone is familiar with. Um, we also we do have a, a, a unique partnership with our manufacturer uh, that we struck early on in the business um, that gives us uh, sort of better pricing. Um, that we did a little sort of equity arrangement, um, and that that has helped us a lot. Ooh, can you, can you elaborate? What, what does that kind of look like? 
that prior to, and it is a U.S. a U.S. factory um, manufacturer. So the manufacturer is U.S. based. Yep. They do also sort of own and operate factories around the world, um, everywhere from the Far East to Latin America, etc. Um, so we make our suits around the world wherever it's sort of specializing in the fabrication that we're using at that time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, uh, you know, if I'm being honest, direct-to-consumer is hard, and building an apparel business from the ground up is really hard. And my background, what I'm really good at, is digital marketing and brand building. And to be honest, I'm just not that good at product or fashion. That, that's just not my background. Um, and so very early on, I wanted to partner with someone who did specialize at that so we could have an optimized supply chain and make the best possible product. Um, and so I, 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 I went out to find manufacturing partners that understood my vision and were excited to partner with, um, but you know, behind the idea that I had, and uh, and so we, we struck a deal where we would get um, you know really good pricing um, in exchange for giving them some equity in the company. Uh, so that that's kind of what we did, and it's a model that I think more D two C brands are sort of quietly doing. Um, it's only upside for the customer because it enables you to uh, you know have a really high quality, well made product at a much more accessible price point. Yes, you mentioned your background. BarkBox, Kickstarter, I know this. In addition to what you brought to the um, to the table from your past jobs, I also want to know the other um, players that were kind of crucial to to getting the brand off the ground. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, so many. Um, I think it's really a misnomer to say it's, you know, a sort of entrepreneur that just builds something out of nothing because there are so many people and partners involved. Um, so, you know, I, um, you know, an early partner was, was BarkBox itself. So, you know, I used to work at BarkBox. And um, when you're starting a business, it's a very lonely journey. And on my last day at Bark, the CEO, uh, Matt Meeker, came over to me and was like, where are you going to start building your company? And I said, oh, my living room. And he was like, why don't you just keep your desk and keep coming in and, and build it out of here? Um, the energy and all of that will help. And it, it really did. Not only did I have a desk to go to every day, um, but, you know, when I would have meetings with early manufacturers or, um, you know, marketing partners or whatever, they would come to Bark, which is this beautiful HQ downtown in, in New York City. And it really legitimized Andy when it was just me and I wasn't collecting a paycheck. And it, it made the brand feel real from day one. So that, that was an important partner. You are so impressive. <laughs> Thank you. It's <laughs> nice of you to say. <laughs> Definitely. And perks or quid pro quos for BarkBox? Um... That's a good question. I mean, really, I think Bark is a place that encourages entrepreneurship. And Matt used to say to all of us when we worked there that, you know, obviously employees come and go, but the most sort of thing that would make him the most proud is for employees to go off and start their own companies. And he was really proud. And I, I certainly gave and continue to give him a lot of credit for that and probably more than he deserves. Um, but uh, no other sort of quid pro quo other than I think they also did appreciate sort of my energy and hustle. And once a company grows to a certain size, um, you start to feel it kind of loosen and employees start coming in after 10 and leaving before six. And so having a small company that's like just hustling and is there, you know, 12 hours a day, that's kind of nice. I wouldn't mind having that at Andy now. <laughs> what did it take to kind of take it to the next level and say, we need a space? Oh, boy, that was hard. I stayed at BarkBox for a long time. I think I overstayed my welcome. Uh, I was there for probably nine months. Um, I think he thought I'd be there for like six weeks. So... I was definitely there for a while, um, but and I also grew the team to three people, and 
like just asked them to bring in more desks for me. I got a little, you know, overconfident. Um, so nice. But yeah. But then I became addicted to not paying rent, um, which is something that can happen. And um, a friend of mine had started another company uh, called Hubble Contacts. It's a fast growing direct to consumer contact lens business. And um, he had just moved into a big, he'd closed a big round of funding and moved into a big office and there was a lot of empty space. So in like September or October of that first year, I was like, hey, you know, maybe we could work out of Hubble. And he said, sure thing. So I moved from BarkBox and moved my employees over to Hubble. And the joke was that the early days of Andy, I was just jumping from one fast growing subscription company to another. Um, um, but but it really helped Andy a lot, just being close to the, those marketing teams and, and soaking it up and, you know, being at the forefront of what was happening on Facebook and Instagram and those channels. We were just, I would just sit in their marketing meetings and then take the learnings back and apply it to Andy, even though we were, you know, a gajillion times smaller. Um, and then, and then, and then from Hubble, um, that's when we signed the manufacturing partnership. And now we work out of our manufacturer's office. Oh, it's been two and a half years, and I've never paid rent. <laughs> uh, but we have we have our own office in that building, and it's big and beautiful. Nice. When did fundraising come in, and what's your what's been your take on that? Um, my take is that it's challenging, um, but uh, important if you want to grow in a certain way. Um, so we signed that manufacturing deal in early 2018 and the first round of funding came following that deal. Um, I think investors, I had tried to fundraise before with no luck basically. Um, and then after we had the manufacturing deal in place, um, then it became really interesting to investors because we had much better product margins. We, it had, you know, really largely sort of de-risked the operation because suddenly we had this, you know, really major partner involved, and so, um, so after we closed that deal, I went back to investors and I said, hey, me again, uh, you know, this is our supply chain now and this is how much we've grown since we launched. And I got a term sheet within like a week. It was the easiest, that was the easiest time I'd ever raised. Um, and so, you know, hired a few people and then about a year later raised again. Uh, so in total, we've raised about $5 million for the company. Okay. What was your kind of pitch? Was it hard to sell investors on the idea of, I'm starting this business. Did a lot of them see it as like a seasonal product? And is it, will it be up and down and we'll have highs and lows? Yeah, seasonality is just the number one question they often have. And my response to that is, you know, a few things. And first of all, like, look, most e-commerce apparel brands are seasonal too. They just happen to peak in Q4 around the holidays. Uh, and they're, you know, they start spending so much and, you know, doing doing all that stuff around December. And we happen to peak in Q2 and Q3. Um, in fact, we have two quarters. Uh, that are extremely high. And it's not like the other quarters are down that much. Um, for one thing, we launched in Australia in November of 2018. So that helps balance some uh, seasonality. Um, and then also, you know, if you don't have to compete on platforms like Facebook and Instagram for impressions around the holidays and you're actually, you know, scaling up your spend in Q2 or Q3, your CPMs are that much lower because no one else is, you know, August is dead for everyone, but it's peak for me. And so Smart. it's, you know, really cheap CPAs. So I, I don't think it's actually more seasonal than anything else. Facebook and Instagram, is that dangerous territory? What <laughs> Did you go heavy maybe early on and maybe pulled back? 
Yeah, exactly. So early on, it was basically the only thing we did um, because they're so good at attribution, showing ROAS. Um, you know, you, you can be really confident for any dollar in, you're getting $2 out. So when you're an early brand and you don't have a lot of money to spend, you just have to be really sort of maniacally focused on the best return. And Facebook and Instagram still sort of win that um, across all platforms. Um, but as you grow and scale, you do need to diversify away from it, um, both because once you start dumping a lot of money into it, the CPAs can kind of break, um, but also you need to become a real brand. You're not really a, a real brand if you're only running Instagram ads. Um, and so over time, we've developed a much you know, more layered marketing approach. Uh, so now we do, we do out of home. We did subways and bus stops and billboards. We do podcasts. We do uh, a lot of influencer marketing. Um, we have a really sort of rich um, channel mix now. Got it. We talk a lot about attribution. What What do you know about those out of home ads and what how the how successful they've been? What do you know about what is working to drive sales? It's ve- attribution is very hard for out of home. Um, the way that we did it, we sort of triangulated back. So, so I should take a step back and say, Andy, in general, we're, we're very very data driven, and we take a sort of you know quant focus to everything that we do. Um, and so for out of home, I wanted to have some way of measuring it. I didn't want it to just be this like floofy thing that we were doing. Um, so the way that we um, looked at attribution for that was uh, we did a two market test. So New York and Chicago. Um, so we had a post-purchase survey that asked where you heard about Andy. And we had launched the survey several months prior with those placements before they were live. So we could weed out the false positives. Um, and then we did, um, so, so we would get some information from the sur- post-purchase survey. Uh, we looked at traffic lift in both of those markets compared to their previous summer and previous seasons. Um, and then we looked at just general um, CPAs on for retargeting across digital platforms in those markets. And for every metric, we saw sort of what, what we wanted to see. So traffic spiked in those markets. Our retargeting costs on digital channels went down. Um, the post-purchase results were indicating that people were seeing it and remembering it. Um, and then and then also we got sort of earned media for it. So, obviously, you know, Glossy wrote about it, and, and, and we uh, benefited from a lot of press as well that lifts the brand. So overall, we uh, were able to, you know, attribute enough to consider it a success, and we'll yeah. do it again. So you know it worked. Is yeah. the next step from there to take that to other cities, or what do you do with that? Yeah, uh, it, definitely. The next step is to roll it out in a bigger way. Um, so we'll we're we're planning lots of really exciting stuff for Q two twenty twenty. Yes. Oh, great. Gosh, now you have you know millions in funding. You're growing your team. Fourteen people. I think on the site there's a photo of your team, and it was yeah. eight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about the growth and like how rapid it's been um, recently. It's been very rapid. We started the year. We're in twenty nineteen right now. We started the year with four, and now we're fourteen. So that's sort of really dramatic growth over the last, you know, eight months or so. Um, so one one big change that we made that led to a sort of um, pop in the number of employees is uh, we used to outsource customer service. And we did it to save money and we were an early brand. Um, but we learned that for swim, you know, when a, when a woman is wearing a swimsuit, it's the most naked she will ever be in public. And so the shopping experience is wrapped up in all these sort of psychological issues and traumas and everything. And if we really wanted to sort of put our money where our mouth was and say, you know, at Andy, you have the best 
swimwear shopping experience, then we needed to invest in a, in a best-in-class in-house customer support team. Um, and so that's what we did. So we started hiring up in-house and, um, you know, four or five of those new employees are, are just focused on talking to customers, whether in text or phone or email. Um, and so that definitely grew our internal headcount, you know, a bit more than I had initially anticipated, um, but it's been very worth it um, because it's not just sort of good for customers. It's I think it's good business uh, yeah. because if uh, if a cust- when a customer engages with one of our support team members, she's more likely to order more, keep more, and then come back and buy again. So just from a number standpoint, it makes sense. Yes. What are you finding about customer loyalty? If they buy a suit, maybe the next year they'll buy another. What What do you know? Yeah. What do I know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, once, So once a woman finds her perfect fit, she's going to keep coming back to the brand that has served her. And so what we've found is um, we encourage women to order many different sizes, um, even though that will inflate your immediate returns you're more likely to have a customer who finds her perfect fit at home. And yes, she'll return a lot of that basket, but then she'll keep coming back. And the next purchase and the next one will um, will be just the, the right size so that there won't be any returns there. Um, and we've also found that for repeat buyers, they index heavily towards the sort of fashion pops and seasonal colors. Um, we have a very, you know, we're deep and narrow. We have 11 styles. Um, and so uh, as we introduce more colors and more fabrications, our repeat buyers, you know, they know their, their best style that fits them really well. And now they're stocking up and they're getting it in red and blue and ribbed and mesh. And, uh, and, and so that's great. Yeah. Is your customer service team also kind of collecting feedback that's really working to, to drive the business and strategies? Yeah, we have a really robust customer feedback loop. Um, so customers, whether they like it or not, hear from us a lot once they've purchased a product. Well, our director of customer service will personally email um, and ask how the try-on experience is going. Um, And then I will email a little sort of insider tip is that it's not actually me. It's an inbox run by one of my customer support people, but um, it's it's really meaningful. And, and, you know, I wrote the initial draft of it, so it is you're just not it pushing is kind friend. of me. Um, and they're really sort of, it works well for them to hear from the founder. And uh, in the email, I talk about why I started Andy. And so, so those are things that um, drive or encourage engagement between the customer and us. And then when customers write, uh, you know, either product feedback or reviews or anything, they get filtered into different Slack channels that we have at the office. And so I monitor them every day. The whole team monitors them, and we can start to notice trends or anything sort of happening through the different Slack channels. Oh, great. So it's like, I don't know, a complaint or a problem, or like what are, what's an example of some of those categories? Yeah, so we have product feedback. So yep. if it's, you know, whether on the fabrication or the fit or anything related to the product, um, we have digital feedback uh, or site feedback. So anything as it relates to the sort of online experience of shopping. And we have this, you know, AI-powered fit quiz. So we get a lot of feedback on that. Um, it's hashtag love for Andy channel, which is thankfully the busiest one of all, uh, where, where women will write to us to tell us what they think. Um, we have a selfies channel. We have a, a, a shockingly high number of customers who take selfies of themselves when they're trying on our swimsuits in their bedroom or their living room and text them to our CX team to just say, like, how does this look on me or which color do you think I should keep? And that just blows my mind. And I think it speaks to um, how well we're executing on on customer support and um, also the sort of friendly and empowered voice that we have. Uh, I don't know any other brand where customers send them, you know, bedroom selfies in really tight fitting lingerie-esque clothes. Um, Thank God you had those customer service people in-house. Can you imagine some 
some rando be like, oh, exactly. you look good. Oh, exactly. I mean, that, when I saw that was happening, I was like, no, no, this is coming in-house and we're going to own this whole end-to-end experience. Yes. Talk about the fit quiz that is online. So you said that feeds to your, your Slack channel. Um, how many who's taking that quiz and stopping are most shoppers yes doing that? yes um, it is very popular it's shockingly popular um, so we have had over 150,000 women take the fit quiz uh, we now have over 1.5 million data points on the fit quiz um, and and by the way the quiz is it's not commodity data like sizing it's it's rich and deep information that we're collecting about what women love and 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 dislike about their bodies and where they're vacationing and how they're going to use their swimsuit um, and I mean, to be honest right now, it's mostly the data is, is there. We're kind of sitting on a gold mine. We haven't really leveraged it. Um, the way that it helps us, you know, f- um, get women home with their best fit is, is that it is a sort of smart feedback loop. And so once you take the fit quiz, we'll automatically add two different sizes to your cart. Uh, it has something like 12% conversion. So if you take the fit quiz, you're very likely to actually purchase. So we do funnel women into it from Facebook ads and stuff. Um, and then once the product comes back, uh, because, again, if you have two sizes at home, unless you forget to return, you're returning one of the sizes, uh, then we can match it to her Fit Quiz profile. And so it just keeps getting smarter. Yes. So ideally, you'd have a, a larger maybe data science team. or Yes. That's, yes. That is definitely a, 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 a 2020 dream, hope, wish. <laughs> yes. If and you know anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Calling all data scientists. Yeah. So you're, you are a female-founded brand. I mean, talk to me about the, I don't know, the necessity of being the face of the brand or being out there talking to me. Yeah. I mean, it's been really interesting. You know, when I, so my whole career, as you had noted, has really been built in venture-backed startups. And so I've been very aware of the landscape and, um, you know, with folks like, like, Ty Haney, uh, you know, Emily Weiss, Jen Rubio, these are all people that I definitely look up to and admire. And, I mean, frankly, until you really asked that question, I mean, I would never put myself in the same camp as them. What they have achieved is so incredible. Um, but it, it is exciting to feel like the landscape is shifting and that, and that you know, as you said, female-founded brands are gaining more traction and more awareness, you know, starting to make a tiny indent in venture capital dollars. I think it's still less than 2% going to, to women, but hopefully we'll start to see a shift there. Um, and so it's been... It's been fun and wild, and it, it feels amazing that people want to talk to me about what I do. You know, that's a really cool thing. Definitely. Do you? Is it a mostly also female-run business? Is your team? Oh yeah, we're fourteen women. Oh. Which, by the way, was an accident. Um, it did, that was not the intention. But I think I think when you're, um, you know, serving women for a female, such a female-centric product, uh, that can just sort of accidentally happen. We did have a guy, he was amazing, uh, but he just moved to California to pursue his, you know, West Coast surfing dreams. Uh, So, um, you know, I'm very excited for him, but it's like that trope in tech where once a tech company loses their one woman, they're like, oh my God, now we'll never get another woman. And now I have that problem because I have 14 women. It's going to be hard to get our first man. But we are hiring, so men should apply. (laughs) (laughs) For data, for anything, folks. Anything, yeah. (laughs) Talk to me about partners in terms of larger. You haven't done a shop and shop. You haven't done any sort of physical anything just yet. Is that correct? We've done very small little pop-ups. Okay. Got it. Plans to do more? Yeah, I think so. I mean, 
our goal is to be a massive brand. And, and um, you know, I think starting digitally is important for all the reasons that everybody knows, data, experience, et cetera. Um, but I don't think you get to be a $100 million brand only by selling on your own website. So omnichannel is something we will definitely do as we grow. Makes sense. And the channels that are working for you, I know Glossy covered um, that you're, you have a robust also Pinterest strategy outside of Facebook and Instagram. What's happening on Pinterest? Yeah, Pinterest has been a, was a difficult nut to crack, but I think we've done it um, largely because it's working pretty well for us now. Um, the thing is, I, we had to reframe our mindset because every channel is different and, and users go to those channels with different intents. And, you know, one thing that we learned on Pinterest is that um, these like glossy, beautiful images work really well. Whereas we had previously learned that on Facebook and Instagram, those are horrible. They'll tank your CPA. You need UGC, you need real photos. People People are so accustomed to ads on Facebook and Instagram. Yep. Um, and th- our, our, our first problem was that we applied that same philosophy across channels and realized very quickly that Pinterest needs a different type of content. Um, so, so we did that. Um, and then we also learned that... Um, we're, so we're very strict about last click attribution at Andy, and we make sure we optimize channels for that. And when you optimize Pinterest just for something like that, it's not necessarily working as well as sitting it a little bit higher in the funnel. Um, but it's amazing for CPMs, for sort of mid-funnel awareness, and it feeds our funnel. And then and then those folks can get retargeted across Facebook and Instagram, and they're much more likely to purchase if they've already seen us on Pinterest. So it's working for us Uh we just had to stack it appropriately. Yes, they need to see it so many times. How many times? Well, they say, you know, rule of thumb, someone should see it seven times. For us, it's a little less because yeah. I think we're under $100. So. Yes. There are a lot of DTC swimwear players. There are, yeah. I mean, are you guys, do you make <laughs> friends? Is it war? <laughs> Good question. Um, you're totally right. So they're, they're, it's a very competitive landscape, It's and it's heating up. I think every day it's like I wake up and there's another brand. Um, I do think there's a huge long tail in D2C swim brands that, frankly, are not really real businesses. Um, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but we say they're like women with a bikini and a dream. Um, and they're not really like a business model or anything there. Um, but you have a few legitimate players in the space. Um, and I mean, you know, all I can think is like, it's a huge market. Um, it's a $20 billion industry. And in the U.S., the women's slice is $5 billion. And so there's room for competition. You know, this is not a winner-take-all market. It's bigger than the men's, you know, shaving market. And just God knows how many razor startups. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, competition, it certainly doesn't scare me. And, and I, I see them around. We'll end up at the same events. And we give each other, you know, fake hugs. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you when you launched, it was right about the time that um, Victoria's Secret like pulled out a swim, and they were, I think maybe the biggest player in the space. Yeah, they they were pretty big. They were doing um, five or numbers. I heard they were doing five hundred million dollars in sales from their U.S. women's swim business. She's Louise. Yeah, yeah. Back. Do you do you make a? I don't know. Do you ever any messaging? Like I know on the lingerie side, there's always like the anti Victoria's Secret messaging. Um, anything that's like. That, that you're saying that, like, we're for real women, we're, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, inclusivity is a sort of core tenet of our brand. Um, our sizing goes from double XS up to triple XL. Um, so we're fitting a, you know, wide range of women. Um, so, so inclusivity is sort of embedded into our DNA. You know, we, we don't do any sort of, like... Um, over-the-top anti-Victoria's Secret messaging. I, I do think our customer is, in general, you know, sort of savvier and, and more woke 
I don't think I've ever used that word before, but I just did. Um, so, uh, so, so, and, and, you know, Victoria's Secret is quote unquote back, but they're not making their own. It's just sort of third party reseller now. So, um, it, they're not, they're not even a blip on my radar really. Yes. As so, we aim to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> Look out. As you grow, kind of go to the next, the next level, you, you know, you have this data, you know, you know what needs to be done. Like the next step, ideally you need to raise more money? Is that what's next? What's next? Yes. Um, so we'll raise a little more money. Um, this is not going to be an Uber or WeWork situation, though. Um, we're, uh, we're, we're very capital efficient as a, as a business, which I think is appropriate in apparel. Um, and so, so we will you know, raise a bit more money. And uh, we have really sort of lofty um, hopes and dreams for 2020 and beyond. And so we're, we're hiring a lot. You know, we're, we're raising money. We're hiring. We're um, going into some exciting you know, product extensions um, and you know, hoping for a really big next couple of years. New markets as well. And new markets. International is definitely part of our strategy. So exciting. Exciting yeah. times. Yeah, very. Well, thank you for being here, Melanie. Yeah, thank you so much for the questions. This was fun. <laughs> this was really fun. That's all for this episode. As a thank you for listening, we're offering Glossy Podcast listeners 20% off an annual Glossy Plus membership, giving you unlimited access to fashion and beauty stories. Use the code PODCAST at checkout. The Glossy Podcast is produced by Pierre Bienname. Please head to the reviews section on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast to give us a review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.